Hello everyone, how are we all doing? I'm Matt from Alembic, welcome you to our Strategy Cafe today. Uh, we're doing a re-recording, so if you attended live and this is a little different, then that's why. Uh, we're going to be talking about transformation today. This is terminology I'm sure everybody is familiar with and probably a process which everyone has been involved with to some extent. Well, for all of this ubiquity, there is still difficulty and confusion surrounding the transformation process for many people. Uh, this can mean it becomes a bit of a complex emotional balancing act and can be pretty unappealing for some. So today we're going to have a look at transformation from the lens of personal transformation, from team transformation, and then finally from an organizational transformation perspective. Joining me today, I have two of my colleagues from Alembic, who I'm sure you will probably know, Nick and Rosanna. Momentarily, before I let them introduce themselves, let me give you a few words on me. Uh, I'm one of the senior strategy facilitators at Alembic. I work with leaders across many different sectors to solve some of their most difficult problems. And that is through facilitating strategy, coaching, and through training. My background's actually in private healthcare, although I've developed an interest in transformation, motivation, and habits while I've been with Alembic. Uh, Rosanna, perhaps you'd like to give an intro as well. Yeah, I'd love to. Hello, everybody. Um, I'm Rosanna. I'm a strategy facilitator. Um, a lot of my work in the last year has been around facilitating uh, leadership teams, really, to get to that point of high performance. Um, so I am taking the section on uh, team change and how do you get the best out of a team when going through change. Hi, I'm, I'm Nick and uh, I'm founder of Alembic Strategy and I'm going to kick off in a minute talking about the um, personal transformation journey. Um, my uh, curious bit of information just to, to, to share with you today is that I'm halfway through a master's on the neuroscience and psychology and mental health looking at mindfulness at the moment and one of the fascinating facts that's come out of that study is that the practice of mindfulness actually increases the size of your brain interesting so as he says to get started today we've got nick with an interesting transformation metaphor nick over to you yeah so um um you may have come across this before the idea of the the rider the elephant and the jungle or the pathway it's um it's a lovely metaphor for change um and you might immediately start to think about what that might mean in the context of the the human the individual human the team or the organization so you know perhaps you're thinking you know the rider is the leadership team and the elephant is like the culture or the team um you know and the jungle is the business environment the context but actually this was really drafted originally on an individual point of view so the idea here is that uh, the elephant represents our emotions and our drives so you've got this idea of an eight ton elephant with a seven stone rider and the rider is uh, the mind. So you've got that kind of weight control ratio between our emotions and our ability to control them. That, so that really make, makes sense. Um, and then the, the pathway ahead is the context of life, the difficulties and challenges that we're facing out there. So it's lovely. It gives you this wonderful kind of idea of how much control we really have and if you want to make progress through the jungle really you've got to get the emotional side of things right you've got to get the emotions on board and if you do it's going to make a lot of difference and if you don't you could be very stuck so you think about you know what could the rider do what does the elephant need to do how can we change the environment for 
this person. That's kind of what the metaphor is about. And we're going to look at it from an individual point of view, a team point of view, and an organization point of view as we sort of run through today. So um, I guess a neat way to get started on this is to talk about uh, an individual client um, in the context of um, rider, elephant, and jungle. And I'm going to also bring in here the idea of the story of self. So this may seem a little harsh, and you probably won't agree with me, and that's fine. This is just my view of things. Um, but where I've come to over my life is the idea that uh, the story of self that we talk um, about, you know, uh, our sense of self is a delusion. And while that seems a really weird thing to say and maybe quite destructive, I've personally found it really empowering because um, if every story I'm telling myself about about self is is false, is is delusion, um, it also presupposes the opposite, which is that I have a huge amount of potentiality. I could be anything realistically that I want to be, provided I put my mind to it, provided I change that story. So this is at the heart of personal transformation. What we believe we are, our sense of identity, what we believe we can be, what we identify with as um, a goal, makes a massive difference to our personal journey of change. If I don't believe in um, something that I have as a goal, then my emotional engagement with trying to become that is going to be very limited. Whereas if I do believe in it, and it feels realistic, and I identify with it as something I want to be, then I'll put my all into it. Now here I've um, also sort of got this idea of rewriting the self. And one of the unusual capabilities of a human being is to have these two aspects. So we can you know, live, we can be, we can be in the flow of life, we can be like water pouring down a hill in the pattern of life. But we also have this ability to see ourselves from a distance so we can reflect on who we are. We can reflect on what we did. We can remember an encounter and we can think about it from a, from a distance. So that's a weirdly human thing to be able to do. But it's incredibly powerful because it allows you to enter into a dialogue with yourself. And many of you will experience this. You probably know it more in the context of negative self-talk. But actually, positive self-talk or positive dialogue or just useful dialogue between me and myself. It can be with others, it can be with um, a trusted colleague, it could be with a coach, it could be with a therapist, it could be with someone from your family. This idea of dialogue, of toing and froing about who you are and what you've done and how you can change that and what you want to be is incredibly powerful. But sometimes we use this idea and say, well, why don't you become the writer of your own story? Rather than just being a character in a tale that someone else has written, why don't you step into the position of being the writer of your own tale? And if you were writing the story, you know, how would you change it? How would you change the passage of play? How would you change the way that this character is relating to the other characters in the tale? What could they do that they're not doing right now? And how might that shift things? And that's um, a really beautiful way of thinking about our possibilities in um, transformation. Um, and then linked really neatly to uh, some behavioral science here. So uh, James Clear, <coughs> excuse me, has written a brilliant book about this, probably one of the best. And he's kind of like a bit of a leading light on changing your habits. So if you haven't read Atomic Habits by James Clear, go and buy that and have a, have a read of it or listen to the audio book. It's really easy to pick up. 
Um, but the stuff that he's talking about isn't really his. Um, it's from uh, the behavioral science side of psychology. Um, and um, that talks about the way that we can get into the patterns of our mind and alter them. So if you think about this idea of water falling down a hill, water tumbling down a hill, um, that's that the brain loves efficiency. It basically uses up a lot of energy in order to avoid that. It tries to patternize everything. If you think about it, um, even when you're speaking, you're not thinking about how you move your mouth. It's just tumbling out of the motor neurons in your mind into your face. And the words are spilling out of your mouth, you know, and, and actually gaining conscious control of it is relatively easy. But even then, you don't want to think about that too much because it's a little bit weird. Um, so everything that we do, maybe 99% of what we do is habits and patterns. So to get into that, you've got to understand, you know, what is the cue in these four steps that triggered that pattern of behavior? What was the craving that I had when I saw that cue? You know, what, what was my need? What was my response? So that's the behavior that you that you exhibit when the cue and the craving come. And then what was the reward that you got from that? Um, it's quite a straightforward four-stage habit loop, but it does require you to know what the cue is, what the craving is, what the response is, and then to understand what the reward is. And you can see here that the way to change it is to make the cues obvious, to make the cravings attractive, to make the response that you need to give that you don't normally give really easy. And then the reward finally is just try and make that reward really satisfying. Now, Rosanna, I know you had a question on this. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a really simple way of explaining how we can change our patterns of behaviour. But I was curious whether you think, you know, there are four stages, whether one of them is easier or more difficult. Um, I'm thinking particularly about, you know, that reward side and whether how aware we are of, you know, when things are rewarding to us, actually. So I'm just curious as to whether th which ones are easier, maybe in your experience. Yeah, I mean, so reward is a curious one. I don't think it is easy. I mean, it sounds like it is, doesn't it? It sounds like it is. But then when you have someone who's had a fight, um, you know, so for example, uh, uh, you know, one of our clients, a leader who had come out of a relationship with one of their other senior leaders and it's kind of a go, no go relationship. And the way he was framing that was like he was being gaslighted, you know, and uh, he was paranoid about the relationship and um, was either turning up to meetings ready to fight, you know, or was avoiding the conflict. So, you know, would he say that he found that behavior rewarding? It's interesting, isn't it? So, but he was getting a reward out of that. So you have to dig a little bit deeper to try and understand what the reward might be. So maybe it's standing up for himself. Maybe he's feeling a sense of self-justification. You know, maybe he's feeling uh, the rush of energy that you get when you, um, when you row, you know. And um, so all of those, if you tune into that, there are sensations in your body which are going to have been rewarding, despite the fact that it's maybe a mess. And you know, we're all human, so we are all going to turn up in a bit of a mess. It's going to be complicated. Thing to say about reward, I think, is that it's both. So it's either it's a technical word. It means reduction of the thing which is painful or increase of the thing which is pleasurable. So it, it can be either of those and it can be complicated. I think that's true for all of them. So, you know, would you know what had cued you? just to ask that and do you know what your pattern of behavior is i think that's quite hard to see in oneself too yeah i, I have a question actually just a comment about the beginning which is um how difficult it can be with the cue um when you're trying to get someone to do change and getting them to understand it is actual cognitive effort 
but they can come in with the best intentions of making change and fall into the same pathways and habits that they've been running for years and years. And with all the good intentions in the world, unless you're making cognitive effort to change and the start of that pathway, it's very, very easy to fall back into what you were doing before. It is. And it's also important to say that cues can come in from all sorts of directions and you might get cued two or three times for something and you might not even know what it was because it can be as much as sort of a raised eyebrow, um, which you might recognise. Um, so I'm going to just pass the ball to you here, Rosanna, and maybe you can take this kind of whole thing into a team context. Yeah, um, so I, I guess when I was thinking about, you know, teams going through change um, and, you know, which which teams do it well, what are the characteristics of those? It, it led me to the story of um, in the Olympics, um, in the 2012 London Olympics, the fastest quad who were selected uh, um, were not actually the fastest four individuals. So something's happening when they come together as a team, that energy, when they're, when they're there together, that they perform better than the four fastest individuals. So this is, it's just fascinating. Um, now on here, we've got um, you know, eight words that are the characteristics that all high-performing teams will have. Um, so you can pick out some of them here. So, you know, think about your team that you're in, you know, celebratory, are you celebrating successes? You know, are you, are you really proud of those? And are you sharing those as, to your point, Nick, as positive stories? Um, you know, challenging, you know, challenging and caring are quite a nice combo. So are you able to challenge and stick up for what you believe within the context of the team? But are you doing that in a caring way that's maybe conscious of how other people are arriving? So, you know, there are eight words on there. It's quite nice to use those eight words as a bit of a sense check of, you know, how your team is currently performing um, against those things. I suppose all processes or tasks in a team are in the context of how you relate to one another. So that's, you know, the mood that we're in, the environment that we're in. You know, I really like the metaphor of the rowing boat because it's about rhythm. You get that real efficiency and a momentum when everyone's rowing in time. So there's a rhythm. Um, so we think about this, often we describe this as being in flow. So in rowing boat, it's everybody um, rowing at the same time. But in other teams, it might be just how easily are you passing the baton on? You know, so maybe you're doing it in a, in a stage process. So they're all things to think about. I suppose if we move on to the next slide, what do I really mean by the energy of a team, which is fascinating? So I think the point here is that um, it, when times are good, it's quite easy to find flow and easy to find momentum. You, you know, we have positive feedback from our environment that says that we're doing a good job. So it's easy to stay committed and be motivated because we've got positive feedback from the environment. Um, but I like the idea of what happens when things get tricky. And that happens in leadership teams all the time. We have difficult problems that we need to resolve. And so, you know, where's the commitment? How are we staying committed to one another? I would imagine in that rowing boat, there's a lot more commitment to those three other people. You know, we're more likely to work harder for those other three people than ourselves. So we have to have that sense of commitment. Um, we also need to be personally motivated. You know, we have to have that belief 
And that might be a different motivation to one of our colleagues in the team, but we have to be motivated by what we're trying to achieve, the direction, the path that's laid in front of us. And that gives a sense of momentum, you know, in making sure that we're going in the right direction. And I think this is to come back to that metaphor that Nick was describing, that is the energy, that's the elephant, you know, it's the elephant that takes the step forward first. It's not the rider, the rider will, you know, direct, but actually it's the elephant that actually means that you have the motivation and the commitment to actually take that, that, that step. So just thinking about in your team, do you have that sense of commitment? Do you even know? You know, how are you making sure everyone's motivated? that's what brings the momentum yeah nick and what examples have you got uh rosanna for kind of accentuating that how do we really get that emotional commitment and know that we've got it yeah it's, well it's a good question and it you know it, it's 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 difficult um i suppose to when we think about commitment you can't just you know be committed from day one you know that comes from somewhere um i think it comes from building trust and belief. And that comes from actually having positive experiences together. Um, so a way of doing that as a team is really in the first instance, look at playing to your strengths and building up those positive stories. So that in our, in, when you're talking about the chapters and the stories, when things get more challenging, we have those positive experiences on the things that we do well um, as a confidence and a belief that we can do it. And we, are, we then have something to commit to. So I think it's about working through finding the rhythm, finding the flow, it gives us a sense of um, belief and trust, which helps build that commitment. I think it's such a good point, um, particularly moving out of what you're doing every day into the context of, of transformation. And I am going to continue that metaphor and talk a little bit about the organization, which is like the jungle or the path. So it's the environment that people are operating in, and it's also partially made up of those same people. Um, so when we think about organizational change, I like to put it into two separate categories, adaptive and transformational. So adaptive change is like the normal processes that businesses go through to adapt to the everyday pressures of operating. Uh, these are things like maybe up, uh, incremental upgrades to your IT system or hiring some new people. And, um, and while perhaps anyone that's done an IT upgrade might disagree with me, is the second category that tends to come with the biggest challenges. Um, and in fact, research suggests that transformational change achieves only around 30% success rate. Not ideal when you consider the level of time and resource that you're gonna to allocate to doing that. And on my next slide, while there are many reasons transformation projects can go awry, we've got three here that we see really commonly and also relate to um, process strongly. So complexity is not usually in itself a reason for project failures, although it can be sometimes. Uh, usually it's an inadequate process or a failure to support the staff which cause things to fall apart. Um, which can present significant obstacles, particularly in the belief of your team. Uh, without belief, you're also likely to have real challenge on your hands trying to win over your stakeholders. Um, and further difficulties can arise when these first two points, um, 
um, experienced difficulties where you've got transformational projects without leadership experience from your team. So if you've got a project and 90% of your team have got very little experience in transformation projects, it's another area that can cause real problems. Um, a client we worked with recently actually um, encountered difficulty in all three of these areas. So they struggled to understand the complexity of the project um, as they, as I said, had really have any experience in, in change projects in their team and they failed to win over a major stakeholder. So this example also plays back to Nick's section on personal change as the chief, chief executive didn't really want to be involved in the change project at all. Uh, so this led to a fairly big problem getting the team on board and getting the project off the ground. So in contrast to that one, we've got another client who encountered all of those same problems, but they identified them very early on in the process in discovery. Uh, and they've developed strategies to address their gaps. They resolve some of the really major issues in their team. Um, and now they're actually doing really, really well. I think a final point that I, I don't have there on the slide is really important as when you're thinking about your change projects is it is vitally important to understand the perception of what the change project is going to do and the expectation for the output of that project. So misalignment on any of those with your stakeholders can lead a great success in your mind being a failure or not success in somebody else's. Um, so take some time at the start of your project to work through this, get some definitions down on paper, um, and uh, along with how you're actually going to do the project, think about how you're going to do that and about what your outcomes are going to be. I promise you it will be worthwhile. So on my next slide, this is the change success model, um, which I think probably a lot of you will have seen before. Uh, I won't go through it in detail now, but if anybody wants to follow up with me, I'd be really happy to elaborate and, and talk you through it a bit. Uh, it essentially describes the areas uh, you need to consider to have the best chances at a successful change project. Uh, the elements of transformation process we've discussed up to this point um, either make up or influence about 20% of what you see in this model. So that means you could improve your chances of success by around 20% just by getting your process and your framework right. And many, I'm sure many of you are gonna have uh, processes, principles, methodologies in mind while, while I'm talking about change projects, um, which is really great. Um, and they're, they're probably some of the same ones that we use as well, like project cycles or agile. Um, and um, while these are really, really good foundation, they're really, really important. Uh, there's, there's always an underlying big picture element to consider. Uh, and that is realistic allocation of resource. So in my opinion, this is the number one place people can start to get things wrong, particularly at the start of a transformation project. So let, let me give you an example. Um, so almost all the businesses I come into are busy. Some of them are ludicrously busy. Uh, yet when we build our transformation projects, it's often suggested that the 100 hours a week or so of staff resource is pulled from the existing workforce, which I'd say is, is pretty optimistic. Um, this problem needs to be addressed really early on and it needs to be addressed honestly. So a realistic implementation plan from the get-go will pay dividends throughout your projects and it will, 
it will keep it moving where it might stall, um, where staff allocation problems crop up halfway through a, um, a project and knock all the momentum out of what you're doing. Let's bring me on to my next slide, which is on change narrative and stakeholder management. So controlling the flow of comms and the overall narrative around your change project in an organization is another exercise that can make your life a lot easier. And while this might seem obvious, uh, managing a narrative where everyone is speaking to everybody else and you might have 20 stakeholders isn't always the easiest thing to accomplish. So a good, uh, good tip and a good tack to take when you're uh, thinking about managing this is to think about your organizational influences. So these are not necessarily the people in managerial positions in your business, but the people who have strong social ties and are often sought out for advice by other people. So getting these people on board can bring the other people who value their viewpoints as well. So it can be a really good place to start and give you a great bang for your buck when you're getting people on board with your change plans. Um, on this side, you can just see a really simple example of a tool you can use with stakeholder management as a simple influence and interest matrix, which you can use to categorize stakeholders into four different quadrants, uh, which gives you sort of broad indication how you can start to manage them. There's loads of tools like this uh, and a load more that we use as well. Uh, we use things like uh, Reiki or project teams to help uh, manage with our transformation projects. Uh, Nick and Rosanna, I'm interested here a bit about stakeholder management from your perspective. I know we, uh, we chatted earlier in the week and Nick, you, you had a point about um, rogue elephants and Rosanna about uh, radishes. Uh, Nick's back, you can come in first on your one. Yeah, sure. So um, I, I just a client example. So uh, we um, had great momentum on a change project, um, everything going um, pretty well. Um, and at, at, at some random point, the managing director decided to um, change the, um, the earnings of um, um, all of the senior team. And uh, it was like, um, you know, um, throwing bricks at the elephants. And suddenly he found he had a rebellion on his hands and he had, uh, let's say, eight angry elephants all storming in his direction, which was pretty frightening and completely destroyed the momentum and the direction and the purpose that we got. So, you know, how do you and, and created a sort of uh, an evil alliance, the most unlikely person in the group suddenly became the leader um, of the rebellion. Um, so we had ages to untangle all of that. We did get back on track, but it was um, so. How do you stop um, somebody going rogue? And Rosanna, um, yeah, I just wanted to share a bit of um, research about this. Um, I, I guess we may have experienced um, when going through change um, a thought that maybe that team or that person doesn't like change, um, is lazy, um, why aren't they getting with the program? You know, those sorts of thoughts. There's some interesting research. So I'll just sort of tell you the sort of the experiment because it's fascinating and it includes radishes and cookies. So um, the experiment was in two stages. The first stage was getting uh, two groups of people in a room. The first group were asked, uh, were sat around a table with a bowl of cookies and a bowl of radishes, and they were asked to uh, not eat the radishes, but to eat as many cookies as they wanted. So that was group one. The second group were asked to not eat the cookies, but to eat as many radishes 
as they wanted. So you know which group you wanted to be in. But um, so that was the first part of the experiment was just to sort of see um, how, you know, what happened. The second stage, which they, the participants were told was unrelated, was a problem solving um, experiment um, to see how long it would take them to give up on an unsolvable puzzle. And what's interesting about this is that those who um, were asked to um, practice more self-control, i.e. not eat the cookies, but you could eat the radishes, were quicker to give up. So those who practiced who had to exert more self-control to not eat the cookies gave up quicker, more quickly in the problem solving experiment. So my point here is that, you know, when we're looking at change, we have to look at the wider environment. You know, has that team gone through quite a lot of change already? Have they built up, you know, have they been practicing, exercising lots of, you know, control so that when you then go through another change program, are they just exhausted? So the research says that, you know, your self-control is that limited resource. And unless we're doing wider things around self-care, just to sort of, or, you know, go into automatic mode, um, be in that free flow of work, it's going to be exhausting for that team who have just been trying not to eat cookies for however long. So it's just an interesting way of thinking about maybe a perception of laziness or unwillingness to change. I, I love that research. It's such an interesting point. And I think it's, it's a really good uh, checkpoint at the start of your change project to think environmentally and to think how exhausted are the people that we're dragging into this project going to be, you know, particularly this one that's in a really important position that you're asking to drive that change. Um, really, you should be check, checking that and checking in with them. Um, I have got some checks for us on our next slide. So sum us up. So these are our three checks to be thinking about with each level of transformation. Um, does it make sense to our rider? Is it still rewarding for our elephant? And is our organizational jungle and path clear? And are we making progress? Uh, and on the next slide to conclude for today, we have put down our top 10 tools for transformation. So the Alembic team has put these together um, and they're all ones that we use. If you're interested to learn a little bit more about these, please do reach out um, either to Alembic or to me directly. I'm always happy to chat through on some of these and I'm sure Nick and Rosanna are as well. And we'd, we'd love to speak to anybody just over a coffee and, and talk you through them in a little bit more detail. And on our final slide, if you're listening to this, uh, please take a second to think about one thing you act on from today. Um, so think about the session and try and write down what it is. Um, anyone who's been tuning into our podcast will know that it improves your chances of doing it if you write it down. And finally, I wanna say thanks to everybody for tuning in today. Our next Strategy Cafe is going to be on the 27th of April with Emma Stroud. Uh, Nick, if you wanna give a couple of sentences on what you're gonna be going through. Yeah, so um, some of you might know Emma Stroud, we've worked with her before, she's absolutely wonderful. Uh, really good uh, executive coach, leadership coach, but also professional clown, which is quite an unusual uh, combination. Um, actual subject for next time round is you are not creative enough and how to fix it. Uh, so, um, you know, it's the, uh, the basic idea is that she and I are going to talk about um, where the source of true value add is in, in business. 
um, and how to balance the polarities that stop you from being as creative as you could be, um, uh, balancing the different parts of the business. It should be a super interesting chat and essential one for people thinking about opportunities for further, further growth individually and within their organisation. And then coming up after that, uh, we've got an explanation, an exploration of the neuroscience of happiness, which is, um, you know, very on trend at the moment with everyone thinking about post-COVID, about well-being. Um, but, you know, how does building happiness improve your business prospects? Um, you know, what are the other factors? What are the nuances around that? And we're going to be talking to a neuroscientist and a business that is a leading light in this space. So it should be super fun. That's your, that's your June gig. So really, really interesting. Two, two great prospects for Strategy Cafes there. Um, thank you for tuning in, everybody. And please do join us at the next one. And we'll see you soon. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Rosanna. Bye, everyone.